0: Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X-Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome, everyone, to the April 14, 2023 edition of the uh, Investment Fridays with Brad on the Expansive CEO Podcast. So I'm here with my chief investment officer, Brad Haynes of Juncture Wealth Strategies. Brad, say hello.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Hannah.
0: Good morning. It is almost tax day, right? So that's the uh, one of the exciting things coming up uh, financially for a lot of people. And I want to dive into a market update. So. Um, For anyone who is new, who hasn't heard this segment before, Brad Haynes is the Chief Investment Officer at Juncture Wealth Strategies. He is a CFA, a Chartered Financial Analyst, and an FRM, a Financial Risk Manager with a long history in institutional uh, investment management. And I am so lucky to be able to call him my Chief Investment Officer um, for X Squared Wealth Planning. So Brad, What's going on in the markets this week that we should be looking at?
1: Actually, some a lot, a lot of exciting things. The past couple of you know month or six weeks has been um, dominated by regional mar- regional bank turmoil. It's been dominated by inflation. Um, what's the Fed going to do? Everybody guessing. Um, are they going to continue to raise interest rates? Are they going to pause? What's that going to look like? Are they going to reduce by the end of the year? Um, but the last, co- the last couple of days have really uh, put a silver lining on some of this gloom and doom. So uh, we yeah. had CPI come out um, less than expected uh, or meeting, depending on which category you're looking at. And um, CPI,
0: have- CPI is a?
1: Consumer price index. It's how we measure year over year or month over month inflation. Okay. It's, it's the prices that the average consumer spends. So a lot of people, if gas prices go up, the CPI helps measure that, that impact um, mm-hmm. nationwide. So, so the CPI is a, a very watched measure, very watched um, for the financial markets and somewhat from the Fed uh, to indicate, Hey, what's inflation doing right now? Um, and that helps form a uh, Inflation expectations over the next year, three years, five years, and like. Um, So that came in less than expected. The producer price index, which measures kind of within the manufacturing chain, which in the service delivery, um, kind of the intermediate, where that what's that pricing looking like before it hits the consumer, um, that also came in less than expected. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of silver lining on some of this uh, high high inflation uh, cloud. It looks pretty decent. Like disinflation is is very entrenched. It's coming down again. The pace and the timing of how it comes down is really critical. Um, as we sit here today, the the Federal Reserve looks like they're going to raise interest rates by another quarter of a percent or. 25 basis points. That's how we say it in the financial markets um, on their May 2nd meeting. And then they're going to pause. Mm. Um, Now the federal open market committee, which is the Federal Reserve committee that sets interest rate policy. um, A lot of the members have said we are not going to cut rates by the end of the year. Um, But the markets currently believe they are going to pretty aggressively cut interest rates by the end of the year. Interesting. So, yeah, there's a wide divergence between those two sets of opinions. Um, so we'll see who's right. Probably neither one of them are, and they will come together at, at some point. Um, so with that said, earnings season starting, which is for everybody who's unfamiliar with that term, it's after the quarter end. It's when all most of the companies report their quarterly earnings or profit results. Uh, So it's a very important time um, that happens at the end of every quarter, and it gives us a real sense of how the companies weathered the storm last quarter, um, Mm -hmm. and and how you know what kind of what the management believes over the next couple of quarters is going to look like. So it's a really important time for the equity markets, particularly.
0: Yeah. And so what have we, what have we been seeing so far? You know, what are, what are expectations or or do we have any numbers in where, where we're seeing reports of meeting or exceeding or not meeting expectations of over the last quarter?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. Like JP Morgan reported today and, and the banks are going to be, a very important bellwether since a lot of the turmoil was among the regional banks. Um, and so those, those are going to be, uh, watched very, very carefully for what, what that turmoil did to the earnings prospects for many banks. Mm -hmm. Um, it looked like JP Morgan was a huge beneficiary of that turmoil since they got a lot more, um, Deposits from from people uh, leaving regional banks, and their their earnings looked really really good. Um, so that's that's good. So so far, twenty eight companies have reported out of the S and P five hundred. So not a lot, but twenty eight have. Um, so far, the growth, the earnings growth, has come in around seven to eight percent on average, um, and the earning or the sales growth has been ten to eleven percent. Now, both those are very good numbers, by the way.
0: Yeah, Um, I was surprised to hear how high those are.
1: Now, it's only 28 companies, so we can't extrapolate that across the whole world. But um, whenever we have higher inflation, sales growth is an easier metric to to earn. Um, Because if you think about it, inflation is a rising price. So if you're selling a certain number of units and you have a higher price this month versus last month, your revenues went up, but it's the flip side. It's the earnings that we have to watch because you're, you're, at the same time, your revenues are going up. Your costs are going up. You're paying more people more, more to, to work for you. Your, you know, your cost cost of goods are, are more expensive. So the earnings become the real bellwether of that. And so far again, across 28 companies, seven, 8% earnings growth. That's a little surprising, um, considering it should have been it it was expected to be negative not too long ago. So we'll see how things continue to roll through as the earnings season progresses.
0: So what does that mean in terms of recession, right? when we when we think about recessionary factors, um, that seems like opposite. Of what we're what we were hearing or expecting, or you know, if a recession is on the border, we've been seeing a lot more uncertainty and people kind of closing wallets. But over the last quarter, at least some companies have experienced the opposite. What do you what do you take, um, and what meaning do you make from that?
1: Um, so that's correct. Your your interpretation of history is generally correct. It right there is is generally we go into a recession because people stop spending. Because they retrench their their spending, the U.S. consumer is you know seventy to seventy five percent of the U.S. economy. That consumer spending factor is generally two thirds to seventy five percent, somewhere in that range. So it's that component is critical when it comes to economic growth. So if the consumer starts to retrench, then the, the GDP growth tends to fall, which obviously puts us into a recession um so far we've seen reta- consumer spending starting to come down um, even at one point they you know the consumer spent the cash that they had earned from pandemic relief efforts then they switched to credit cards and now you're starting to see credit card spending trailing off so a lot of Uh, a lot of what we believe is uh, you're going to continue to see the consumer retrench over the next couple of months. And you will probably see a center recession um, towards the middle of this year. Um, So while that sounds terrible and it is for a lot of people because recessions mean, you know, layoffs are going to occur or accelerate um, you know, jobs are going to be harder to come, come by. And people are generally, Uh, a little more fearful in that environment, which is why you have uh, economic growth slowing down. Um, But the silver lining is that is equity markets forecast the next nine to 12 months out. So by the time we're into a recession, generally speaking, the equity markets are starting to rebound given the fact that the investors are forecasting that the Federal Reserve will step in and start to lower interest rates to spur on a little more economic growth. We aren't there yet, obviously. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see how that, that, that continues throughout the summer.
0: Yeah. This seems like a really interesting, like the, the things that I'm picking up and, and hearing, um, and have been over the last, you know, especially the last year or so with the interest rate dance, um, but the Fed has been doing the what I keep noticing is the disparity between what the Fed is saying, what the, you know, the different chairmen are saying, um, and what the market is expecting. Right. So you mentioned this earlier that, you know, they've said that likely going to raise rates one more time in May and then pause and then the market is then saying oh no we think we think they're going to drastically lower rates um as a forecast and so the interesting the interesting thing that i've noticed is you know that then the market is reacting so if the fed raises rates and then pauses and at their next meeting they don't cut then the reaction is like oh no they didn't cut rates we're you know we're going to have a Volatility um, temper tantrum, want to call yes. it that about that?
1: <laughs> yes, that's a good way to view it.
0: right. So is there a connection, you think, there between you know the the way that we view a recession, the way that consumers view a recession? We'll put it that way, um, versus you know, what the market is forecasting? And what the fed is doing like is there kind of a fundamental disconnect or is this business as usual like is this how it always happens
1: um this is kind of always how it happens in a more typical recessionary uh i I mean this recession is different than the ones we've experienced over the past 20 years because it's it's due to federal the federal reserves actions with interest rates Whereas you know the past 20 years, most of them have been from um, exogenous effects or uh, I guess another way to say that is something happening to the US economy like you know what 9/11 was was a big shock from outside the. US. Um, the the turmoil and the great financial crisis with the mortgages, that was within, but it wasn't necessarily because the, the rate the interest rates were, were being uh, jacked up. It happened because a lot of people were getting loans they shouldn't get um, and they couldn't afford um, over a period of time unless real estate prices went straight up. So this one is a little different that in the, in the aspect that the Fed is structuring this slowdown. They're causing it. So one of the easy ways is unless they break something, i.e. cause a credit crunch, cause a bank crisis, um, they can also take it off pretty easily. They can also solve that problem. For example, they'll raise interest rates long enough to determine that inflation is coming down in a sustained way, and they, they will lower interest rates once they get the indication that it's too high, that you're starting to see things break. And if you'll notice, that regional bank turmoil we had in March was, a I believe, one of the preconditions for the Federal Reserve to go, okay, we're close to the top. Hmm. We now have seen some of the weaker players in that marketplace struggle and go out of business. So. Because that's the first indication of a crack in the credit markets, um, I think the Fed's going to say they're going to look at the recent deceleration in, in in inflation since June of 22, and they're going to say, "Okay, we can we can raise interest rates just a little bit more, but then we have to pause to see how all of this these these higher interest rates are rolling through the economy." Um, one of the things I think is a major difference between consumers and investors and policymakers. I'll put put investors and policymakers on the same side. Is um, consumers see the now, what's happening now, you know? Whereas investors and policymakers are looking a year out. They're saying what's going to happen, you know. Um, as consumers, we. We notice inflation whenever we spend money, whether it's going to the gas pump and paying higher prices for gasoline or whether we're going to the grocery store and eggs are, you know, three to four dollars per dozen, which, you know, is very expensive relative to two years ago. We Mm -hmm. notice that impact. That's a now. That's a today based on that transaction that we execute. Um, policymakers and investors are saying, "Okay, we know what it is today. What's it going to be a year from now? And how are we going to react? And that is where the disconnect comes, um, because at the same time, I'm a financial market participant. I'm one of the investors on that side of the table. And I get really irritated with inflation currently as I spend money. But then I'm also investing and trading to make money off of what inflation is going to be a year from now.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that, to me, that feels like, um, that feels like the piece that kind of gets missed in, you know, talking about where we're going, right. In um, allaying people's fears, right. That, that when we're in it, in the now what can happen with consumers and, you know, going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, when we feel that pinch of, you know, things are, things feel different. This feels harder. Things feel more expensive layoffs happening like that, that is impactful and it can feel scary. It can, it can, it can bring up a lot of just fear and uncertainty and Then you've got people on, you know, our side of the table on the advisor side saying like, this is, this is temporary. This is temporary, right? It feels, it feels tight now, but it's going to release. It's going to get better. Um, and so for me being the one who tends to communicate that be on that side of communicating with clients, um, that things are going to get better there, it doesn't always allay the fear immediately right but it is it is nice to to be able to you know look back to history and to be able to say this is how it's happened before this is what we're seeing in the next year 9 to 12 months is a great time frame for people to kind of hold on to that like this is not forever even though it feels bad right now yeah i mean i
1: i, I feel for clients um and I feel for clients during every time we go through a rough market experience uh, because it's always different, but it does rhyme a little bit with history, right? But it's it's always different. So it's very scary for them every single time we go through it. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we talked about two weeks ago on our call was um, the fact that when things look darkest, for the client, you know, they're, they're watching TV, they're reading the news, they're seeing massive layoffs, things look really terrible. And that's when the equity markets are starting to go up in a sustained fashion. And they're like, why is that happening? Why, why are the stocks going up when, the, when everything is terrible? And part of the reason is, is because that's a forecasting mechanism. You know, they're looking out a year from now. They're not looking today at all the layoffs. We already priced that in six to nine to 12 months ago. So, you know, when we're starting to go up, when things look terrible, that's wise, because we believe it's probably going to be fixed fairly soon. Um, You know, it's one of the things that uh, Bloomberg Opinion did a really good chart and they did an analysis of the last six times the federal reserve paused on an interest rate hike, what the, what the following 12 month return was. Mm -hmm. And out of six incidences, the average was 20%. A 20% return. But the problem is, is you have to have the confidence to invest during that time or stay invested. And that's very difficult for some clients to emotionally, to, to, to get over.
0: Yes, and I actually uh I wrote I wrote an article for for, for Forbes um about that chart in in, oh, in particular. Uh so you can find that um I'll link to it in the show notes as well because it is so enlightening, right? When we say, you know, when advisors are on our side of the table saying like, okay, this is where we this is where we lean in uh and it feels scary, right? That's it's because it's because history has borne out over and over again that if we stay invested if we lean in when everything else seems like it's you know the the typical uh uh blood in the streets um right which is a terrible metaphor but um that's usually what people say when it looks that bad out in the world that's when to lean in on the investment side um and so Absolutely. I know we've done that. We've done that, uh, at juncture with the, you know, clients who were invested, um, in the, in the models that we have. And, you know, that's, that's the way to capture the upside, right. Is, is to stay invested to not, not do the typical, you know, buy high and sell low. We're doing, we are literally doing, you know, the, Buying at the bottom uh, is the the goal, anyway. No no one can ever get it perfect, but um, that's how you do it. If yeah, we
1: we do our best uh, to modify the risk profile of the portfolios to help people stay in for a long period of time. One of the reasons we do that is to help the client emotionally be able to stick with a long term plan, but also Because it provides some cash for rebalancing. So when we, when things do look better, we can reinvest cash at a, at a, at a, at more advantageous prices and then ride those up for the long term. So it's a, it's really, I understand how people get scared. I was just talking to another one of our advisors here locally and he's, he's had a couple of clients call in this week. To sell out to go to cash, completely they want out, and mm-hmm. um, you know I, I kind of walked him through some some data points and some some talking points about you know uh, why why their specific fears while they're understandable are 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 really looking backwards they're not really looking forward, and so it becomes a very difficult thing for most. Uh, investors to do is to look forward, digest the current negative, but to really uh, put it in light of what is going to probably happen over the next 12 months. And you want to be participating in that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that is such a, that's such a good point because this is, you know, I've, I've had a couple of those questions from clients about, should we go to cash without the, without the fear that I've noticed in previous, previous times when, you know, we've had some big market swings, um, it was more of a question than a, I am panicking. We have to go to cash right now. Um, which for me, when I look back and, and see the, see the growth there, it's like, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing that we, you know, we've shifted away from, that, that more panicky um, side of I have to go to cash right now to hey is is should we be asking these questions? And then for me, what I get to say is that's being actively managed already, right we we are looking at all of these factors. here are some of the things um that we see forecasted for the future. this is the time to stay, where you're at and the the cash cushion that is there because it's already been built into the model will be you know pushed back into the equity markets when when we see it as the appropriate time which is going to feel a little scary right and and so to have 100%. that to have that trust though to have that trust that hey this is this is working it has worked and it's still working and like that's it's an it's an emotional decision for the client and it's a tactical decision Right for you as the CFA and FRM, right? Like correct. So that it's it's communicating
1: hundred percent. Here's
0: the tactical side. I understand that this this feels emotional for you. Let's let's take the emotion out as we well, as much as we can.
1: Most clients I first meet and they they they're looking to engage us and to hire you or to hire us. Um I have to warn them but that I'm going to be buying on days that they're going to want it. They're, they're going to be really concerned. And mm-hmm. I, I said, I apologize for that because it's just part of the process. And I know you're going to be wondering what the heck we're doing. And I know you're going to be a little scared, but you just have to trust us to, to navigate you through this um, period. So it's an interesting It's always an interesting dynamic through every bear market that we go through um, because while clients' concerns are extraordinarily valid and their emotions are definitely valid, it's we need to help them as advisors and and investment managers, help them to see through the, the fog of emotion, to see the data, to see, look, this is what will probably happen, over the next 12 months, two months, three months, year, you a know, year, two years, so that you can, so they can benefit and hit their long-term goals. My concern right now, to be fair and honest to everybody, is my biggest concern is about be, people being too conservative um, starting from the summer on. So a lot of people built up a lot of cash, They've built up, they've invested in some short-term CDs or things like that. And um, I think clients should be preparing, whether they do it now or whether they start, you know, dollar cost averaging in. If they want to gain participation, they need to start like putting that plan in place now. Uh, we we may have some pretty aggressive down. Uh, down drafts here in the market over the next couple of months. But once the Fed pauses, you know, eventually that's going to set the stage for a pretty nice equity rally. And so I want to make sure that people are participating and not participating towards the end of that, that Mm -hmm. increase, which is unfortunately generally what we see is clients stay conservative far too long and then they get the last quarter of that bull, quote unquote bull market right. right before the next bear market so um you know that's why we want to keep people in for the whole thing so they get the increase and then the next bear market you, you don't have to worry nearly as much because you're kind of playing with gains to a certain extent
0: yeah that's what i that's what i have seen over and over again as well especially with clients who you know came from a less active management or you know were doing it themselves for a long time is that when they got out you, the the question is always i don't know when to get back in yeah and then it's gone up and you're like oh but what if it comes back down and then it it does you know it has a, a little bit of a down day you see i knew it and so you don't get back in um and then the market takes off and in you know a series of it's always you know what somewhere between five and 10 trading days where we get most of our returns Yes. um, in any given year. And so you missed four of those trading days, you get back in for the last one and like, well, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Um, When you're not, when you don't have a, a process that you're following. Um, And, you know, someone, someone like you uh, who knows so much more deeply about, you know, the, the mechanics of the, how the market works, um, if we want to put it that way. So I want to, I want to shift just ever so slightly because the emotional piece of it, um, actually comes into what I wanted to talk about today about tax loss harvesting. Um, because we are, like I said, it's April 14th today The tax deadline this year uh, for, you know, most filers uh, filing a 1040 is uh, April 18th. So we are right in the, you know, finishing up, everyone's done. And a lot of people end up having to pay capital gains taxes on investment capital gains. um, And we hear about it, right? So we hear about it. In December, usually, is when things are happening, right? So that's that's when we are, you know, November, December, we're hearing about um, capital gains reports and different things like that. But then it's tax time in April, March and April, when people are then paying those tax bills. Um, and so I get questions every once in a while, um, asking, okay, well, do you do tax loss harvesting or what is tax loss harvesting? Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk about that today. Cause that's another emotional thing is when you have to write that check to the IRS, cause you know, your investments supposedly paid out, um, a certain amount of capital gain and you're, you don't necessarily see it. So let's talk about, I, I really want to talk about, um, especially mutual funds, and paying out capital gains and how that mechanically works and what that means at tax time and how we, how we manage around that.
1: Okay. Those are really critical, critical uh, notions and ideas and concepts for individual taxable investors to understand Um, the tax drag on an investment portfolio is the biggest cost a, a client is going to pay regardless of, uh, it's the biggest cost to their investment portfolio. So a lot of people look at fees and they focus on fees and they focus on commissions and all of that. And from my experience over 30 years, the tax impact is far, far more impactful. You pay far more in taxes than you do in a fee. So, uh, you know, I have I've had some investors that, you know, want to discuss fees and all those types of things. And, you know, you just sit and ask them, how much did you pay on capital gains tax last year? And it's like three to four percent. Well, I tell you what, let's focus on that first and then let's focus on the investment management or advisory fee afterwards. And generally what happens is by the end of that discussion, they're totally fine with the investment management fee because we've just saved them 2% on their capital gains budget or their capital gains expense.
0: Yeah. So I want to, I want to open this up with a, um, with a client example, um, okay. because it's phenomenal. And I actually got uh, like a thank you, that I don't know if I shared with you yet. So thank you, Brad. Um, <laughs> It's always fascinating so, nice right? Yeah. so I have a client who's been with me with for many years and um you know where we were before, we used he- heavily invested in mutual funds. So I'm gonna give a very short lesson here on capital gains and mutual funds. So a mutual fund is a it's like a basket. It's like if you have a basket and the mutual fund managers buy a bunch of different stocks, it could have, you know, 30 stocks, it could have a hundred stocks in that basket. So now, you know, that's the mutual fund. We'll say it has a hundred stocks in it. You buy shares of that mutual fund. As a, as a single person, you buy shares of the mutual fund. So now you have, you know, one one hundredth of, each little piece, right? You have fractions of shares of each of these companies and it's inside of a mutual fund. It's going to have a ticker symbol, symbol, like, um, you know, usually five letters. Um, I won't give any names just so it doesn't matter, but it's usually, you know, ABCDE is your, is your mutual fund. Um, I don't know if that's a real mutual fund. That was just an example. (laughs) Just to be be. super clear here. Right. So you've got your mutual fund, A, B, C, D, E, and it's worth $100 per share. And it's December 1st of 2022. And on December 1st, they announce that they're going to have to pay out capital gains dividends to their investors. So a mutual fund is required to pay out any capital gains to its investors if they existed each year. But that doesn't mean that you see an extra influx. So mutual fund ABCDE that currently is priced at $100 per share, you own a certain amount of shares of it. They say, we're going to pay out a 5% capital gain. So you're going to see that on this date, right? So maybe December tenth. That means on, you know, right around that date, they're going to pay out a five percent taxable capital gain if it's in a taxable account. If you've if you own thousand dollars worth of this fund, it's going to be um, fifty dollars, right? Five percent. Did I do that math right? Yep, you did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> public math. Uh, so you're fifty dollars payout of taxable capital gain, but then the mutual fund itself lowers the price to make up for the capital gain. So instead of being worth $100 per share, it's now worth $95 per share. So that effectively washes it out. It it doesn't actually um, have an increase to the investor, but on your tax return, you're going to see that $50 as taxable income. So if we're talking about $1,000, you're like, okay, 50 bucks, whatever. That's not usually the case, right? If we talk about $100,000 and now you're talking about $5,000 of capital gain that you have to pay taxes on that you don't actually have any perceivable increase from that mutual fund, that is the capital gain distribution from a mutual fund. Um, and so when we get to tax time, that $5,000 line item is going to be on your taxes. So Brad, did I, did I explain that pretty well?
1: Yeah, that's exactly layman's right. terms. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I'll give an example, uh, early in my career, I had a client who owned, bought one of the big mutual funds, large cap growth. It was a, you know, very well known and, we went through a down year. So he lost money and he bought at the end of the prior year. So he had owned it a year, the market went down um, and yet he got a capital gains hit. And he he was asking me, why why did I have to pay tax when I lost money? Mm -hmm. I said, well, the funny thing about mutual funds is if they own Coca-Cola since 1950, and they had ridden it up well that's part of your gain even though you didn't benefit from it so it's something that's really important to just keep track of like the embedded capital gain that's potential for when you're investing in mutual funds or ETFs or or the like you just need to make sure that and that's one of the things that we do as professional managers is we watch that impact mutual funds are a great Great thing if you have a small dollar amount and you need diversification right away. They're not great if you have a certain dollar amount or more. And it's really not that much. You know, if you have $25,000 to $50,000, you can probably get away with a lot better tax impact and expense ratio by investing in exchange traded funds, uh, which are basically funds that trade on the exchange like a stock, um, because of the way they handle capital gains versus an open-ended mutual fund. Yeah. 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 it's, 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 it's an interesting dynamic, but it's also why ETFs are, you know, are, are leaping in popularity with taxable investors.
0: Yeah. So that's where that was the, um, where we were going to go next, right? Because where so this particular client, um, previously the size of size of their portfolio, they would end up with fifty and sixty thousand dollars of capital gains distributions. Again, exactly the way I described it, where they didn't necessarily they didn't have fifty thousand dollars extra sitting in their account because the price of the mutual funds lowered,
1: right? right. To
0: to incorporate that, but they had literally fifty dollars to $60,000 of capital gains that would have to be reported. And then they'd have to write a check um, to the IRS for that. And so switching over to a more actively managed tax model and um, more, more heavily leaning into exchange-traded funds, ETFs, um, and individual stocks and bonds there were we actually were able to harvest tax losses last year um with the active management. And that client literally has not had zero like a tax loss that they could offset against their their income in years. And the investments still performed better. Right. So we had so su- it was such um such a big impact this year that I really wanted to to talk about it because people don't know people don't know that that's an option right that we have other investment instruments that don't require we don't have to you know take that capital gain distribution because an ETF doesn't do that same it doesn't have that same mechanism with an ETF instead it's still a basket right it's kind of it's kind of the same it's still a basket of different stocks but it trades just like a stock on the stock open stock market right you can trade it any time during the day and they don't require you know they don't have that capital gain distribution requirement so with that the only thing that we're having to pay attention to is you know do you have you know, from the time you bought that instrument say you bought that ETF at $50 per share and now it's trading at $75 per share you know we have to pay attention to that gain but it's not going to get paid out on you just because, right? You get to choose when you take that taxable gain.
1: Absolutely. There's a couple of other, there's two other things that I want to talk about in relation to ETFs and why they're more tax efficient for uh, investors. One is for a person who does large trading, right? So we do, when we're going to buy an exchange traded fund or we're going to sell it, Um, you know, oftentimes we have a $10 million trade. So that's not a great trade to just put on the market because it's a lot of money. So oftentimes the volume isn't, um, can't absorb that easily. So sometimes what we can do with ETF providers is we call them up and we say, okay, we want to take $10 million out of the fund And they can, what they'll do is they will um, figure out all the different positions and they will distribute the positions for us. And then we will sell in the client accounts, those individual positions to to get. Now, the reason why I'm making that point is because the remaining investors in that ETF don't get hit with the capital gains. Mm. Our investors do, okay? which hopefully we've done the research and figured out that there's a reason why we want to sell out, but I'm just using it as an example of uh, when large investors want to sell, there's a mechanism of that distribution of the underlying positions that places the the capital gain on the people who are selling it, Mm -hmm. not on the remaining shareholders. Which is a very different mechanism than open it in mutual funds. Yeah. Um, the second thing is is oftentimes, and, and this is part of the way we do it, obviously at juncture, is if we own an ETF, we're not just buying it once; we're buying it multiple times. And so, what happens is if you own, let's say, we buy a hundred shares, but we do it five times, so now your total position is five hundred shares. Well, sometimes. Those positions have different tax cost bases. Okay. And so, whenever the volatility of the markets is going around, we're looking at those individual tax lots to make sure that we can take some of those tax losses and still remain invested. Mm. So, that tax loss, tax lot um, work, if you will helps mitigate a lot of the tax gain. And if they don't have any gain, it adds to a, a a tax loss carry forward that a client can use in the future against future gains. Um, cause you never know what's going to happen. So it's obviously better to have, uh, the IRS OU than the other way around.
0: Yeah. Yes. And so that was the other, the other piece I wanted to get to because, um beyond the the kudos from a client who's extremely happy with you know how it went last year um i had another client who asked who had you know had a different financial advisor saying well do they do tax loss harvesting um as if it was like a like a special thing um that not everyone does and the truth is not everyone does it like that that is the truth um but it's when it's embedded in the process, you know, tax loss harvesting can be a process where, you know, your advisor is kind of, um, you know, making decisions about, oh, do, should we, should we take this gain or, you know, sell this position and buy something similar? Like that's a whole thing that you can kind of go through November of each year. Yeah. Um, if you know, like, as things are being reported and, you know, it's, um, it's messy. I'll tell you that's like, I've been through that process. It feels messy. It doesn't. And it's not, sometimes it's like the lesser of two evils thing, right? Um, like, do we want to take this capital gain and deal with it and hold this mutual fund? Or do we want to sell out and like, get into this other one that has a lesser capital gain? You know, it's just like, it's messy. Um, And it doesn't always work, but instead when we use the the types of instruments that we use at Juncture, um, mainly like the ETFs and individual stocks, we get to like, just like you were saying, we get to like manage it throughout the year where it's an active process of paying attention to where the gains are at, at any given time. Um, and we get to make conscious choices about, you know, just what's going on rather than like waiting until November to see what's being, you know, who's going to pay out what, um, on the mutual fund side, and then just being at the mercy, right. Of whatever's, whatever's happening. Um, so I really, as an advisor, I really appreciate the, like the forward thinking of it. And the, like the fact that we can say, you know, we want to, keep it within 5% any given year. We don't want to go above 5% capital gains. And we have conversations throughout the year. It's not a one-time thing. Can you speak to that for a minute?
1: Yeah. I mean it's it it has to be embedded in part of your process. Um, the end of the year kind of um, sprint method, if you will, where you're you're kind of it, is there's there's a couple things. One, Um, a lot of advisors uh, allow that tax dog to wag the you you know what I mean, the tax tail, tail yeah, tax tail to to wag the dog. Wag the dog, thank you. That was terrible. But (laughs) um and that's what happens when you when you come down to November and December, it's more of a oh my goodness, we have to offset this because the client wants you to offset it, as opposed to throughout the year, when we when we're making tax lot, it's because we're changing the investment portfolio to a certain extent. Um, Or we have, like I said, just uh, we have a lot of volatility in a particular asset and there's ways we can take advantage of that. So we'll sell, we'll take some tax losses, particularly if a client has let us know the year before and generally we like to have those conversations with them saying, Hey, what does the next year look like? We have what, what is your tax budget? You know, what's, you know, well, I've got a lot of gains coming up this year because I'm selling something or I'm doing something. Um, so we can then throughout from January on, we can start banking those losses as they occur as long as it, as long as it adds to the tax adjusted, you know, return for the client we're not doing this if it's going to harm the client's portfolio return but we are doing it when it makes sense and more often than not it makes sense because i oftentimes can sell an investment capture the loss buy another one that is is different but has you know reacts to a lot of the same factors and so i'm i'm getting the same economic exposure but I'm, uh, it's different enough that the IRS allows it to be um, a tax loss. So, you know, there's there's different ways you, you can do that. You can't buy something that's exactly the same. So if we're doing that in an ETF, and let's say it's an S&P 500 ETF, I'm not buying an S&P 500 ETF with another ETF company. Right. I am actually buying a different index. I'm buying a different company. I'm buying a different ETF so that we have a lot of the same exposure but it's not exact and it's significant enough that the IRS says okay that's a tax loss. Um right. So the I, other,
0: I, the other risk is that you would you would uh trigger the wash sale rule if anyone wants to look that up. We won't go into that today but that that's basically what Brad is talking about that if you you sell an S&P 500 ETF by iShares and then you harvest the loss and you're like well I'm just going to go buy the you know, the BlackRock ETF, that's also S&P 500, right? The exact, it's basically the exact same thing on a different platform. The IRS will see that and say, no, 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 you don't get to keep that loss. And that's called the wash sale rule.
1: Yeah. It has to be significant enough difference, but we know the rules. We comply with the rules. We obey the rules, but we, we also take advantage of of the opportunities that present themselves to our, to our client's benefit. Um, we actually generate, we actually term this as tax alpha, which is, again, that's a fancy way of saying we try to reduce your taxes as much as humanly possible with keeping in your return um, a better return than, than your, than your benchmark, um, which is obviously set by the financial planning process and, and your goals and your risk tolerances. So
0: yeah, I love it. I love it. So the the action step or the invitation there um, for any listeners who, you know, if this is something that you've either heard about and you want to learn more about, like send us your questions. Um happy to talk more about this. And if you are that person who, you know, gosh things were down last year and yet still somehow I had to pay capital gain taxes, I know you're out there, right? I know that that happens. Um, So if you were affected by that and you want to know, is there a different way to manage this? Yeah, the answer is yes, Um, we can manage that differently. And um, it is, you know, tax loss harvesting is an important aspect of, you know, managing your portfolio in an appropriate way. So I am glad we got to talk about this topic today.
1: Me too, because like I said, uh, taxes for individual investors is the most, that's the highest cost for their investments they have. And unfortunately, um, our industry, we focus on returns, we focus on volatility, we focus on lots of things. But we don't focus on the actual tax tax aspect as much as I think it deserves, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a, it's a really critical thing. If we can if we can reduce your taxes by one percent a year as a percent of your portfolio, um, I mean that goes right back into investments, and that compounding effect over a number of years is pretty significant.
0: Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you, Brad, for talking about the market and interest rates and inflation and earnings and tax loss harvesting. I feel like we covered a ton of ground um, this time. So thanks for being on with me again.
1: Thank you. Have a good one, everyone.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.